Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast, but if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, please don't forget to follow us on social media at Snapshots in Hockey History on Facebook and at Snapshots in on Twitter. Well, got a great response to part one of our interview with Adel, Alan May, Adam May, <laughs> Alan May, and uh, I know everyone's tuning in to hear part two and not hear me ramble, but before we kind of get to part two of the interview with Alan May, where we talk about the playoffs, we talk about the middle of the season, tell some really funny stories, also lets you know who, has the hair, who had the hairiest back on the team, good stuff. Um, wanted to touch on the All-Star game, that was this weekend, and I gotta be honest, I didn't even watch it. I didn't watch the skills competition or anything, and I used to get jazzed for the All-Star game. Like, I remember the 95-96 All-Star game. I can't remember where it took place, but they had the teal uniforms and the purple uniforms. And I remember being so excited to watch the skills competition, so much so that when it aired a second time, I remember making my mom watch it with me. Like, that's how much I enjoyed it. And it wasn't as much as a show as it is now. Like, I remember the game being fun and things like that and trying to watch it every year, but I feel like the harder they try to make it more of a show and to make it more meaningful, the less enthralled with it I am, if that makes sense. And I don't know, I just kind of wish that they would kind of just let it be what it is, and that's just a showcase of some of the top stars, and just leave it at that, and, and kind of for what it is. I heard they had Green Day there or something like that, which that's cool, but Green Day was cool when I was in fourth grade, and I'm 35 now. I don't know, it just doesn't have the same appeal that maybe Major League Baseball All-Star Game does, or the NBA All-Star Game. I don't know, it's just not me. I'm not here to complain, though. I'm here to share part two of my interview with Alan May, which was so much fun. I think everybody will really enjoy this. If you didn't hear part one, go back and listen to it. We released it last week. Uh, part two is great. We pick up right where we left off. Talks a ton of fight stuff in here. Talks about stories about you know his personal life and kind of what motivated him. So a great interview. Want to thank Alan again for coming on. Enough rambling. Let's cut to part two of our interview with Alan May. So you have that Islanders game, and then a couple days later you visit Pittsburgh, and you guys pick up a win against the Penguins. Uh, or, excuse me, the Penguins pick up the win, but the Capitals didn't go down without a fight. With just 34 seconds remaining in the game, you engage Mark Kachowski, who was uh, a guy. I grew up with him. Oh, did you really? I grew up with him, and so Chow was one of those guys. He didn't have what I had. Like So we played in Edmonton together. We played Bantam AA, and they didn't have AAA hockey back then. We played Bantam AA and Midget AA. And I drove him to almost every game of practice. And, <laughs> so you got to fight him then, right? And uh, nah, we're buddies, though. And we hung out in the summers. We skated together every day, Monday to Friday. He never went to the skating classes with me, but he, uh, you know, he did other things. He, he had a great physique on him, but he was not uh, cut from the same cloth. He wasn't, like, I, I, I was raised a different way than he was. Mm -hmm. So for him, the fighting part wasn't, uh, it it. I don't think he believed in himself in, in that. So it was, you know, he, he was fighting, I, I would say out of fear, not as disrespect to him, 
but I, I think it weighed on him way more than because I remember he jumped me in that and didn't throw a punch. And it was just I was embarrassed I got a five minute major for that one. And I remember he used to put a ton of Vaseline on his face for the game. And I never did that because I always thought it was to me, it was weakness to put Vaseline on. It was like you're expecting to lose a fight. I never went into those expecting. And so he and he's going, good work, good work, good work. And I was like, <laughs> I was mad at him for that one. Because I was mad because if we're going to fight, let's fight. Let's, let's kick, actually do it. Let's right. kick each other's ass. Let's have a winner and a loser, bud. You said he put the Vaseline on. And this was kind of the era of the hacksaws and the guys that would uh, gimmick their sleeves so that they yeah. ripped easier. I know Cordic did that. Did you ever – I don't think you ever did anything like that, but did you ever experience – what was the craziest thing you saw of somebody doing something well, like that? Well, I never once did it. I would never do it because it, to me it was a sign of weakness. Right. For, mental weakness for me. So I had to – Jay Miller, who I had in Boston, said – you're going to do it like a cowboy. It's fair up, fair up, win, you lose. And uh, he said, that makes you legit. So I always took that to heart. And, you know, did I cheat in fights every once in a while? Yeah, I did. I used to do the jersey grab when the mullets. And, you know, if I was fighting a guy that was 6'5 and a left, I would grab him by the hair inside the jersey and, you know, you'd tune him up. But uh, I never did that. But I fought, what was it, my good buddy Kelly Chase one time. I'm swinging punches at him, and all of a sudden, and I got his arm exactly where I want it so I could fight him with my eyes closed, and all of a sudden, his sleeve breaks. Just rips right up. And he, and he, that little thing, I think it's called your septum in your nose, and that meaty little thing in the roof of your mouth, uh, inside your mouth, between your teeth and your lips, your, yeah, that thing got ripped off, oh. and I was so mad at him. I, I don't know how many penalty minutes I ended up with that night, but I cracked him later with a cross. I was pissed. But that happened and that, so St. Louis guys always had jersey gimmicks. Basil McRae, I was fighting him in Minnesota, and his sleeve must have had elastics on it, and it went into his shoulder. I saw guys with Velcro sleeves. I always thought that was ch chicken shit. And then I played with a guy, and it was, he used to put, they'd have us hang his jersey, and they would spray it with cooking spray. All game like cooking grease, so that way it was hard. It to was grip. like a silicone or like a slippery. So when he was fighting with the with the moisture of the jersey, the old jerseys were a lot worse than these things. Uh, you couldn't get a grab on him. And then probably the hardest guy. And then you had the guys with the goalie jerseys, um, Marty McSorley, who could fight for ten hours and never quit. Uh, he had a goalie jersey. He'd pull he'd pull all of his gear off. Probert would come out of his gear and have nothing. Dave Dave Brown had that baby jersey one year where he had a sleeve that was like an extra small and you couldn't grab it. And he was already, in my opinion, the toughest guy in the league, the hardest guy to fight. So I thought if we go, well, he's wearing that Jersey. I remember going to Edmonton the year that he was breaking faces and Terry Murray goes, ah, you don't need to fight. I said, we fight, we fight. It doesn't matter. I said, but I'm grabbing his hair right off the back. He had that long hair. <laughs> I'm not going for the sleeve and go no, for the I'm hair. Not, no, I'm not letting him break the bones of my face because he was impossible. He was already too hard to fight as a lefty that was mean and I said, if it happens, it happens, but it's going to happen my way, not his way. And I might have to crack him over the head with my stick before that fight starts. But the, uh, but you had different jersey. And then I, the smartest, best one ever is Ty Domi's jersey was so tight and Ty was jacked and he still, he still looks like he is. He's, he's, he's massive. And I saw him in the hallway one day and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Look at the physique. He had traps, he had pecs. He looked like the Albanian assassin. He was just like, and we we're in the old cap center. You could see the other guys there cutting it. And there he is with the shirt off on the other side. And, you know, I weighed like 170, 175 that year, I think. And he looked like he was 225 and he's like 5'8. He's ripped. And I remember that night he beat the 
beat the hell out of John Cordick. And I told John going into the game that uh, this is not my rookie year again. But he, this was the year later when yeah, John he, he, had a seven-game stay. Yeah, he but he, he punched John. He, one of the punches knocked him about a foot off the ice, a left. Good and I God. told John he's a lefty, not a righty. John, no, nah, I used to fight him in Toronto. I go, no, he's a lefty, John. And John was so mad that he get that he didn't listen. And but anyway, so Ty was Jack. But that little jersey, you couldn't grab anything. And not to mention a guy like me, I couldn't punch as hard as like a Joey Kosher or Wendell Clark or those guys. I I couldn't hurt the damn guy. And he was so strong, it was almost impossible. Low center of gravity, really good at fighting. Uh, you know, great competitor, improved a ton. But man, that jersey, there was nothing to grab. And there was no hair to grab because the guy always, yeah, had that so little, always had the short hair. Yeah, the team closed out the month of November with an, a record of nine, eleven, four, and two. So you're, or excuse me, nine, eleven, and four. So you're two games under five hundred. And let's talk a little bit more about you. So you've made the National Hockey League. You've been there about a month or two. You've had a couple fights, had a couple goals. What were you thinking at this point? I mean, where, where were you living in the city? Like, what was we life all like we for all you? lived in. Uh, Crofton, Davidson, Davidsonville, Annapolis back then because the practice, well, the pra- new practice rink was going to be built by Crofton somewhere out there in Maryland. So it was like you weren't on, I, I never felt like I was on the Washington Capitals. Right, because it was a team in Maryland at the time in and Piney we, Orchard. And everyone lived in the suburbs in these townhouses. You know, majority, half the guys lived in townhouses. The other guy had, you know, the guys with kids had houses. And, you know, the American League, you all live in the same spots in right. the same apartment buildings or whatever it is. And you, you know, you you hopefully you're getting called up and you're going to move back as soon as the season's over. The day it's over, you drive back to your hometown. Uh, so it, w- it was weird because the arena was uh, the practice rink back then was in Mount Vernon. So we'd hang out in Old Town a little bit, but you know we'd always have to get back to Maryland by the rink and by the we used to fly to BWI. So it was really different. It wasn't like being in the nation's capital so much. And you know, I know off the ice, I lived a lot. Like I used to go to hang out in Georgetown and. I'd go downtown. The guys would ask, my Christmas guys were asking me where I should go eat. And like, I got family coming in. What should we do? I was like, well, go here, go here, go here. Because I was going to live and enjoy my life. Well, nowadays, you just said it. Washington, D.C. has turned into a hockey town. But in 1999, it didn't sound like a lot of people were familiar with the team. I know when asked to name three capitals, former Redskin, Dexter Manley was quoted as saying, Rod Langway, and who's the guy that's dad might be an actor, Gartner or something? (laughs) Like, it just was, it was a different era. So... For, for you, you know, you mentioned that a lot of people weren't known. What did you do when you were off the ice? Did you guys just – and you don't have to give specifics. Nah, but well, there, there's – people don't realize how much free time pro athletes have. That's what I mean. I mean, you and practice so you, for an hour and you then – You might be out of the arena by one at the latest. I used to work out every day. So I'd work out game day, non-game day, whatever it was. And you just got a, a lot of free time. So – I, I used to read a ton of books, guys with families, do family things, you know, pick up your kids, drop your kids off, take them to different events. But the single guys, you just got a lot of downtime. So it's completely different. So I used to go to Maryland basketball games. I'd go to Bullets games. Uh, I'd go to Redskins games. So I was always doing something. I was always had in my mind I was going to live a life. And I, I wasn't chasing the buck my entire life. But I always wanted to do things. I wanted to do awesome things. And so I made sure I was out, you know, going to different events. I went to concert, you, you name it, I was going to it. And I, if I wasn't at home reading a book, I was at a concert or a sporting event. Now, did you have someone on the team that you kind of ran with or was it pretty much you doing your own thing? Well, we used to have, uh, when I got here, actually, they had to change over the team. They started bringing, they brought in youth, they brought in younger guys. And that's probably why the team was good in the playoffs that year. 
um, different thinking and different attitudes. And eight players under 25 years old yeah, on that team. So I, uh, well, if Rod Langway said, "Hey, want to hang out and have a beer tonight?" I hung out with Rod Langway. So we'd hang out in Old Town a lot. And Nick Kiprios, uh, I can't remember when Cote got here. If he got here the next year. Next year. Yeah, but. So there was this group of guys, this, the young single guys would, were always down to go eat, have dinner, and, and hang out. But Kiprios and, you know, he'd probably be the primary. Neil Sheehy, I hung out with a ton. Donnie Beaupre, I lived with Neil and Donnie at different times. Uh, you know, we'd all split places. But you just, and sometimes you're just tired. You know, you just, you, or if you're, if you're sore, you just go home and lay down. And, you know, a lot of, I, I was never a sleep guy, but a lot of guys just, they slept. And I, I always think it had to do with their bad diets, and uh, the pasta, the pasta brigade. brigade Back always, in the day yeah. when everybody let's pile, let's carve up. So yeah. December was an incredibly busy month for the team. You guys would play 14 games in one month. The Capitals were the most penalized team in the NHL at this point. So I'm curious, did you ever have any pressure to stay out of the box? Did anyone ever tell you to cool your jets? No, because I never went alone. Uh, I think that season. I may have had, I think it was 16 minutes, so I only went to the penalty box on eight minors by myself or had an instigator minor where the team was on the disadvantage. So I had learned early. When I, when I was in junior, I had a really good coach, and so I made sure I went to the box with people. So I didn't, I got penalties, but I made you sure took I created, I could create incidents. And so I never had the pressure, and I, I actually felt pressure to do more as far as, you know, I always, I almost felt like I needed to have 800 penalty minutes, the honest way, not the 10 minute misconduct garbage way. But uh, I just felt like every game you had to be, and I, I'd, I'd go, man, I haven't had a fight in three or four games. I better do something. Time about to get that. going. Like, time yeah. to get going. I, w- I would take it like you also got to send messages, keep your guys safe, protect, uh, you know, protect and serve the five minute <laughs> major. And uh, it was, it, it's just, it's just part of what you do and who you are when you when you take on those roles if you're legit about it. So as the month progresses, uh, GM David Poyle continues to tweak the roster because things hadn't been going great. But he ends up moving veteran forward out uh, Dave Christian for newcomer Bobby Joyce. I'm kind of curious. What do you think of the trade? Well, I was a huge Dave Christian fan growing up, and I'm uh, one of the great moments of my life was watching the Miracle on Ice. Mm-hmm. And as a Canadian kid, I couldn't have cheered. I was actually cheering more for the U.S. and because the Canadian kids were kind of the, the throwaway pro guys that were there, and they used to have this national program, and you know they'd always get screwed over. They'd be on the, they'd make a commitment to the team, and then all of a sudden they'd bring in different guys just before the Olympics. I always thought it was horseshit. And uh, the U.S. guy, I remember reading about at my bank used to have uh, Scotia Bank, the bank I had growing up, used to have a hockey magazine, and there was a did a profile on this guy named Neil Broughton, and he was from Minnesota, and he was. Minnesota Gretzky and I was kind of obsessed with this guy like and I don't know how much he's not that much older than me but when I got to play with him in Dallas I told him man I watched everything you did I was like obsessed with now I'm your teammate uh, and how spooky is that like how, how goosebumps you know like yeah. and then Dave so there's a U.S. Olympic I always held the miracle on ice guys in high 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 regard and so when Dave was one of the really good guys I think he had the first family get together a team get together on a Sunday afternoon of this house he may have lived way out in Springfield or wherever it was and just a really awesome polite kind awesome person salt of the earth and then Bob Joyce on the other hand who I ended up being really good friends with I was kind of pissed off at because when I was with the Bruins they kept talking about Bob Joyce Bob Joyce and you know he was at the Olympics 
And first of all, I was mad. One of my targets as a kid was I wanted to be on the, that Olympic team. And he was on it, and I thought, I'm a better skater than him. You get, then the Bruins bring him right in. They play him on top lines. Like, I'm a better skater. Than, so I kind of was a little – but then as soon as he gets traded there, he's a good, great guy, and he's part of the crew. He's hanging out. He's in the dinner crowd on the road. He's funny as shit, laughing all the time. Uh, just a really good guy. A good you say, hey, you want to have a beer? He said, yeah, I'm going to have a beer. And he, he was just a good guy. So when, you, when those trades happen – you, you, you'd have to look at them as, uh, as positives and it's more opportunity. And then the other side of it, a little bit of a selfish side for me, that's one more right winger out of the way. That so you, you do honestly guys and you know, cause you're a rookie, you want to establish yourself. So you want anything you can do to get more ice time. Uh, but I thought, you know, one of the things that they were doing, I know when they brought my group of guys here, we we're a little bit crazier than the other guys. Like we weren't teetotalers we were kind of badasses. Like we had attitudes. We were physical. Uh, we, t- we took nothing. Uh, we didn't act like rookies. Vets gave us a hard time. We gave it right back. Um, so the dressing room dynamic changed a lot. And, you know, I took Ben Gustafson's jersey and his stall. And people didn't like that so much at the start. And because I talk about completely different players, polar opposites. And I don't know how loud Ben was in the dressing room, but he's a great dude. I got to meet him post-career. Uh, and I love the guy. But I know he's not like me. Like, I used to sit with Rod Langwin in the dressing room. It was the, the king and the prince. The way the stalls were set up, we had this. We had the only two by ourselves. And uh, Rod's a leader by example. And he would say say something. to, And I would pop, pipe up and, and say something. i go, hey, stay out of the damn box. Your penalties are stupid, Scotty, or something like that. The Scott Stevens. And then there would be, and then, you know. A little banter back and forth. Yeah, and- usually full of F-bombs. You're going back and forth. And. I go, no, seriously, stay the F out of the box. I go, they're shit penalties and things like that. And so completely different. All of a sudden, the young guys and the, you know, we're, I got the young guys that aren't taking anything from the older guys anymore. And not that you needed to, but I used, just to, different. I used to say sarcastic things in a room like, I remember going to the playoffs and we'll, we'll get there later. So I'll save it for later. How's okay. That? All right. Yeah. All right. Fair. At the end of December, the Washington Post publishes a great article that talked about the success of Dino Cicerelli. He'd been experiencing an amazing season, nine goals in the past 10 games. Brian Murray described Dino as a guy that was extremely competitive and loved to spur the pot. And you were quoted in the article as saying you roomed with him on the road and he was always screwing with the TV. What memories do you have about Dino Cicerelli? Well, first of all, as tough as he was on the ice, he was a grade A chicken shit off the ice. And uh, he, well, now that I understand, but when we first started, he wanted, he went to the coaching staff and I thought I was up the creek one day and the coaches called me in, Dave Apoyle, and said, we've got a huge problem. I'm thinking, oh my God, what did I do? Did they find out something I did off the ice? Blah, blah, blah. And he, uh, they go, Dino doesn't feel safe on the road. He wants you to be his roommate. Like, what? Kind of like Semenko is for Gretzky. Well, you know, Dino had been in a lot of trouble. He'd been arrested. That's true. In Minnesota, yeah, he had some a, issues. Yeah. He'd been arrested. Uh, for an assault with us hockey stick in Toronto and people didn't like him. And, you know, we'd walk down the street and people would say shit to him when we're in the Canadian cities. Uh, so anyways, he wants to be, uh, wants me to be his roommate back in the day when you actually had two guys to a room and uh, weird. Anyways, the uh, uh, first road trip we're playing in New Jersey and it's like 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. And I got a book out, but I got the TV on at the same time. And I, I don't go to sleep before 2 or 3 a.m. every night. I'll stay up reading. I'll, you know, I'd, late night TV, never been it, but I'd have the TV on. And he goes, shut the TV off. I'm tired. I go, if you're that tired, you go to sleep. 
so I'm leaving the TV on. And so he goes, no, shut the TV off. I go, no, if you're that tired, you'll sleep. It's not that loud, go to sleep. And he comes over, tries to take the remote and I won't give it to him. I just throw it in the foot of my bed. And uh, I said, just get away from my bed, you weirdo. And uh, so anyways, he goes to the TV and shuts it off. I just turn it right back on. So this <laughs> goes back and forth. Then he comes over and he's getting mad. So I end up putting him in a headlock and uh, he falls asleep in a headlock. <laughs> <laughs> next day, his neck's all fucked up. And, but he never screwed at the TV. I said, if you're that tired, you'll sleep. You'll but fall I, asleep? But then a you know, married guy, kids, wakes up at 6 a.m. to get some of this preschool, play school, whatever it is. Uh, go, he's always the first guy at practice. But uh, it, it was just real, he was too funny. He, he, just, he had a bad diet. Uh, it was always something wrong with him. He was always in conflict. I could egg him on. And he was easy to pick on, but I loved the guy. And we're still really good friends. And I still bust his balls about everything. But anything he did, he heard about from me. It was awesome. I, <laughs> and he, I have so many dumb stories about him. It's unbelievable. And it, he, uh, one time I came back in New York. I was out late the night before a game. And I wasn't out like late, 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 late. But I, I went out. I actually went out on a date. And I come back. And he... Uh, the room is empty and there's pizza boxes and there's shit all over the room. And it's all just my, a mess. And, and I'm like this moron. And you know, he's one of the guys that used to play cards and they play cards in our room. Sometimes I was never a gambler. And, uh, and I see there's, there's like lifesavers on the nightstand. There's like the, the lights flashing. There's a note. He goes, there's a rat in the room. <laughs> he goes, I changed rooms. I'm in room, whatever, five Oh three or whatever. I jump on the bed. I'm looking around for it. So I'm taking, well, that's must be what the pizza's on the floor and the, the lifesavers are all ripped apart. And uh, so I pack up all my gear to go to another room. And uh, when I'm leaving the room, there's a mouse on the floor with a lifesaver stuck to its nose. It's, uh, it, it, it's probably two, three, four inches long. So it wasn't a rat. It wasn't, a rat. <laughs> it wasn't a rat. He's a chicken shit. But anyway, so I go and he goes, where have you been? Where have you been? I was worried sick. He, he's chicken shit. So I... Uh, I, I go into the room and I uh, put all my stuff in, take my clothes off, uh, have a quick shower, and hop into bed. Same routine every night. Well, when I shut the, the faucet off in the shower, it's still dripping. And, but, you know, so I lay down and all of a sudden I hear something in the bathroom. And I go to Dino, I go, do you hear that? And he goes, what? I go, you don't hear that? Oh, God. So I go in the bathroom and I walk in there and I, all I do is I put a, uh, towels beneath the faucet in the in the in the shower and the and the the bathtub and all of a sudden i just come out and i go ah as loud as i can i come running out of the room he jumps on his bed and i just remember i fell asleep belly laughing <laughs> and he was so mad at me and then in the morning as soon as uh i i opened my eyes i jumped up real fast and he jumped up again he got all he he's just so, so scared yeah he, because... yeah he is so scared it was unbelievable but the good thing about it wasn't a great hotel and he got us upgraded in New York City to a far better hotel because he went right to the coaching staff, pissing and moaning about There's this rat. There's a rat, quote and I, never, and I never told anyone any different about the rat until years later because so I, I like the better hotel. 25 years later, exclusive on, on the podcast. Thank you, Alan, for, for finally clarifying. Um, so the, to kick off the new year, the Capitol Square off with the LA Kings, and, and we talked about going to LA and... You guys, it looks like took on a. Uh, you guys went and saw Who's the Boss and saw a taping of that. It was awesome. 
It's awesome. A, I wanted to ask you, as an NHL player doing stuff like that, you know, what are some of the experiences you got to have throughout well, the my, years? The guy that ended up becoming my agent because my agent was going to prison or something. Uh, <laughs> That's the, a whole other yeah, story. Part the, two. The, uh, is best friends with Tony Danz, and they play in this fast-pitch softball team on Saturday mornings with this gr- famous group of doctors and all these guys. Well, we go to a Friday night taping, and uh, the entire team's there plus all the trainers. So I believe there's a party of 28. We go to the taping. Afterwards, uh, some Tex-Mex place uh, just down from the studio where we're at. I don't even know what town we're in. If we're in Burbank or wherever we're at doing the taping. Well, he brings a bunch of cast members. He comes, Tony comes out with us. And this is no wonder the guy's in it. He's worked as long as he has. He's always had work. He asked, he knows all 28 guys' names after being introduced one time. Wow. He knows every... and so every guy goes through and says what he wants to drink. Hey, Al, what do you want to drink? I'm back then. I'm a rum and coke guy. I go a Bacardi and Coke, uh, gasoline and Coke, in other words. So, you know, he goes through and some got Miller Lite, whatever it is, Dos Equis, uh, you know, a guy vodka, but just a whole variety. So every guy, every single guy, he orders it to the waitress, gives the exact orders to the waitress, waiter, whatever it was. They come back and she goes, "What is that? Oh, that's that's Maydays. That's." Rum and Coke for him, Bacardi and Coke. He went through every guy's, knew every guy's name, every guy's drink. I was like, I was so in awe of the guy. More so for that than any of the acting. It was, it was phenomenal. It was pretty cool to see how, I even remember that his best friend was part of the show that night. His childhood best friend, Bobby Guvinelli, was part of the show. Great name. And yeah, great Bobby, name. Yeah, but I remember that. So you get to do things. And like, my, like I've lived my life, I say yes to everything. And that was one of those events. We could have easily said no and done it, but the whole team decided to go, and uh, it was absolutely awesome. Mm, 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 mm. And as we get through January, the team hits, gets hit with the injury bug. You guys lose Langway, Steven, Sheehy, all out of the lineup. The team ends up having to recall a 19-year-old draft pick from junior named Jim Matheson. And Kelly Miller, a career capital pretty much, I think he started with the Rangers, wears the C with Langway out. Why do you think he was chosen as the guy to put the C on? Leadership by example. Hardest worker in practice every day. Uh, there's a lot of guys you could say that about, but his professionalism uh, on and off the ice, uh, the care that he had for his teammates, their personal lives, uh, a role model to me is like a father and a friend. Unbelievable man. Just incredible. And uh, just they're just everything about Kelly Miller was honest. And it was absolutely no doubt in my mind that he, he should be if it wasn't. Well, we still had Scotty. Uh, but I think Scotty might have been. We had so many guys injured at that time mm-hmm. and then that he might have been. Out. And he might have been the last man standing because I always felt bad because I know what's coming. Uh, I always felt bad about the way things went down a couple weeks later. And that's exactly what happened. We go on an eight-game losing streak, and you know when things go bad, it's a business. GM David Poyle decides to make a change, relieving Brian Murray of his head coaching duties and hiring his brother Terry. So a couple things here. First of all, no one ever likes to see it when somebody loses their job. <laughs> but the guy's brother is taking it. Like, what's everyone's reaction? What's your reaction? Well, I, I was absolutely in shock. And I felt that Brian got I, – I never felt that David Poyle fired him. I always felt that he had to be pushed to do this. I, I didn't like it because we had so many key injuries. All of our defensemen were injured. Mm-hmm. I think number six was number one at that point. And as, as six defensemen, I, I think our top five guys were out with injuries. There were a lot of key, key injuries. I think Hatchie's out. I think Scotty's out. Roddy's out. Uh, she, he was definitely out. I yeah. mean, you, you, you yeah, were we, pretty much down. Yeah. yeah. And so 
you, you couldn't win. We had America, we had the Baltimore Skipjacks, and a lot of those guys that we had from the Skipjacks were these Canadian Olympic guys uh, that played on, you know, that w- were, th- this had this. They, they back- played for Dave King, yeah, and then yeah, they come over. It was kind of yeah, a weird. It was very weird. Anyway, so we got this group of guys up. When you can go all the way to junior doing an emergency recall, you know you got a lot of injuries. And Jim played three games never to play again. Jim Matheson, that is. And so Brian gets fired, and I'm watching the news. I get a phone call. Coach, we got a new coach. Turn the news on. That's how you found out about that. You had to like, turn the TV <laughs> so on. So crazy. No and I was at the team no nutritionist's house, uh, actually, when the news broke. And... Uh, going over you know they're trying to get me to gain weight because i was all of 170 pounds or whatever it was so i'm getting a new nutritional plan and uh coach gets fired and then they say his brother and i just thought god that's awful how like you think of how awful but i found out just about a month ago that his brother wanted him hired. brian wanted terry to be the coach and you know that i don't know it caused it caused conflict in the family somehow i don't know if it was the wives, the brothers, whatever it was, but there was some conflict about all of this happening. But it was so weird. And then they go into practice the next day, and they were both kind of, when they led a meeting, they were both kind of monotone and boring. And then Brian, at least he threw funny jokes in there, but you had to pay attention when Brian talked. So I remember at Terry's first meeting, my eyes were rolling. I used to sit in the front, front of the classroom, and I was taught that as a kid. It'd be easier to pay attention. And I just remember I was getting tired listening to him. And it was like, I go, got moles in the same spot in his face. He's got the parts of his hair. He's just about two inches taller, a little fitter, but he's boring as hell. And But his message was a little bit different, but it was absolutely bizarre. And once again, so the guy that had me the great talk as a rookie when I got traded on the phone and kind of I used that as a template to build myself up, didn't talk to me in training camp, didn't say hello to me when he walked by. And, said, and for about the first three weeks he was coach, he didn't talk to me. And I go, what is wrong oh, with this? Oh, that would just drive me crazy. Like, yeah. That would mess with in me. In today's hockey, it's, uh, that's definitely not going to happen. That's not going to work in today's hockey. Uh, but it was so weird. And then finally, we were on a road trip somewhere, and I met him at the pool. And once again, half-hour talk. Felt great afterwards. I had, like, had zero doubts ever. <laughs> I, like, and it's like, that it is just so weird. And everyone, you say, yeah, you're Terry's favorite. You're Terry's favorite. You're, I go, well... He should try telling me that. Because he didn't talk to me for a month. Yeah, it was weird. At the end of January, one of your line mates was placed on waivers. And he's a guy that I don't think a lot of newer fans know about. But he was a former first overall pick, uh, first round, Doug Wickenheiser, who you know was taken from us way too soon. Yep. Did you play a lot with Doug? Yeah, I did. And I was one. Actually, I feel bad. I, should have, I used to hang out with Doug. Mm-hmm. And before I was roommates with Dino, I was rooming with him a lot. And then to go into Montreal the first time we went in there, uh, I was with Dougie, and it was big news. You know, their former first overall pick of the Montreal Canadiens. What a classy, awesome guy, and treated everyone with so much respect. And he'd been beat up uh, throughout his career by the by the press because uh, they'd built him up to be something he wasn't. And you know, a French team drafted. They turned on a. You know, they should have drafted Denny Savard first, right? A French guy because it goes unless Doug was French, it wasn't going to. It wasn't going to work no matter what. And he was a really good hockey player. He was an excellent two way player. Played in St. Louis, had a really good career there, then had a really freaky injury off the ice. But just a great, good dude. It treated everyone with res- respect. You know, like when you grow up and you see these guys, you're in awe of them. Mm-hmm. And then some guys you get to meet and you're yeah. like, oh, my God. Yeah. That guys, what a fraud. What a douchebag. And then a guy like Doug Wickenheiser, like you think of all the guys that should be angry and mad and have a chip on his shoulder, Doug would be couldn't ask for a nicer, kinder guy that carried himself and treated people with respect. So you go from how he treated 
uh, waiters and waitresses and restaurants, flight attendants, uh, the people at the arena, uh, his teammates, every single person he came across. Just a classy, awesome dude. Awesome. In early February, the team received some good news. We're finally getting some of those people back from injury. Scott Stevens was cleared to return to the lineup after suffering from a broken foot to put him on the sidelines for 39 days. The team was 5-12 and 12 without Scott in the lineup, and I know he's a Hockey Hall of Famer, but his first night back, he scores a goal, 12-2 over the Quebec Nordiques. Is having a guy like him that big of a difference maker in the lineup? Uh, huge. He was the, well, Rod was the best defensive player when you just go to defense, but mm-hmm. the best all-round player on defense was Scott Stevens, and maybe in the National Hockey League, in my opinion. Throw big hits, tough as nails. Uh, could move the puck, could rush it up and down the ice. I had a temper on him. He, I could actually get under his skin really easy, and I used to when he got traded. But he, uh, and he was one of my better friends on the team too, so I hung with him on the road a lot. So he was part of the dinner crowd. And, uh, but a phenomenal hockey player. Oh, my God. And he had muscle on his muscle on his muscle. He had muscle in his feet. Like he had, I, I hated him because – he, you couldn't put on weight and hear no, this guy's got muscles again, on the, muscles. The, the secret was, oh, you guys would be eating a bag of chips on the plane or on a bus. He'd be eating a bag of prunes and, and, and almonds, you know, shit like that. So he, he was way ahead of his time. He, he's just a, all muscle and mm-hmm. highly competitive in practice every day. And I used to love that. The part about him in practice, I would do shit to him almost every practice to piss him off. And then he'd push and shove with me. i go, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And I would every day could get – he'd just be in front of the net. We'd be doing penalty kill or power play or whatever it is. I'd just go run right into him as hard as I could just to piss him off. And then it'd be hacking a whack, and I'd laugh at him. I'd put my glove in his face, and I could get under his skin every day. And then afterwards, he'd go, why are you such a jerk? Why are you such a dick? <laughs> I go, are we going for lunch today? He goes, yeah, I guess. Yeah, where do you want to go? Yeah, but yeah. come on, knock it off. But every day. It was every day. But I, I hated the guy was – I could work out 12 hours a day, lose weight, and gets this guy just muscle on muscle it, and just just so far ahead of his time and no wonder he had a long incredible career so you got your first point in 16 games in that game it was an assist and I know that you were a role player there to fill a role but did ever not scoring points or, or getting goals ever weigh on your uh, on your self-esteem I guess I should say nah you know what I was just you think of it, you're trying to get wins for the team you're concerned you're obsessed with wins the attitude's always better on winning teams, uh, you know, the way the coaches treat the players. But when you're losing, you know, like my, I think my penalty minutes would have went through the roof while we're losing. And because you've got to do more of the other things. So you got to do more of your part. So our team, our team was weak. So I never went into looking like that because I knew I needed to fill this role and needed to do it every night. I had to play a certain way. And I think, so I got an assist in the 12 to 2 game. Yes, you did. I get, so I think probably everyone did because that team was sad. I think poor Scott Gordon, was, was that his first or last ever NHL game? It wasn't good. But I remember uh, my buddy Brent Severin, it was, I think, his first game called up to the, the Nordiques, uh, phenomenal hockey player, and they got waxed. I mean, it was a Tuesday night. Uh, I can't believe you old, remember this so well. At the old Cap Center. And it was just bizarre. It was ugly. But I, I might have fought Tony Twist a couple times that night. Very possible. Yeah, yeah. Very, th- that, so, you are correct, actually. Yeah. That was my next note is, yeah. what do you remember about fighting Twister? Well, you know what? I just remember he was one of those guys. He put tape on his jersey. He taped his jersey from his gloves to his elbow. And uh, he was primarily just through right hands. And he was big. So I knew that just get my hand inside that tape and hold that arm so he can't nail me. Because he was probably outweighed me by 60, 70, 80 pounds. 
and not a very good hockey player, not a great skater, but a ferocious fighter, threw wild punches, probably hurt himself more than hurt anybody because he punched way too hard. Uh, but a lot of wild punches out of him. So, yeah, I think uh, we went 50-50 in those fights. Uh, no clear-cut winner, no clear-cut loser. But I think he beat the shit out of uh, Nick Kiprios later that game. He or Jocelyn Lemieux, one of them. But Kip, Kipper took a beating. And, uh, came back, you know, the great thing about Kipper is he never, if he did, did take a beating, he came back and fought again. I was going to say, one thing you could say about Nick Kiprios, he always got back up. Yeah, oh, yeah. Always got back up. Yeah. And after smashing the Nordiques, the team faced off against the Pittsburgh Penguins, where the team lost. And then the following night suffered another loss against the Devils, but bounced back against the North Stars and the Oilers with wins. But after the game in Edmonton, I read that you guys took that trip down to Arizona and had like a little bit of a mini camp where I guess it was supposed to be a vacation, but you guys ended up renting ice down there. It's kind of. So that was probably for the media's benefit. But so what we did is we had, I organized, by then I'd taken over organizing all team uh, events. So at the resort we were at, I had, and it was kind of cold there at the time of the year, so we kind of got ripped off. But we had a volleyball tournament every day. And we had... One type of beer on one team was Coors Light, Miller Light games, and that, and then I divided the teams by who had hair on their back. Oh, jeez! To, to, to who had no hair. So on So who their had back. the hairiest back on the on the team? Uh, Ivan Corvo was like an ape. Um, and then he gets traded like three days later. Yeah. So of course that's how it works. Yeah. So they had Stevie Leach, guys like that. There was, and then all, and it was funny. All of us other guys who weren't, you know hadn't reached puberty yet we're on the one team and then all the other guys are on the other team so basically if you're a hairy bastard you're on the other team so we did that every day and then that, i think that's where i had my first conversation with terry murray was by the pool there after the volleyball tournaments and then but i organized that every day and then we everyone would have to drink after the tournament everyone would have to drink canadian caesars which is a bloody mary with clam juice uh, instead of tomato juice clamato juice is called so we would do that and then we'd go out at night, and then we were told when we started skating, no matter what happens, no matter how hard you guys went out, we're going to skate at 2 p.m. I'm going to skate the daylights out of you. We played at uh, practice at some place called The Wave, and the ice was, like, wavy. It was, I was going to say, know, it was probably mush and, and it was slush. Weird. It was just a weird old floor. So the, uh, the puck, every once in a while, the puck would be going across the ice and just go flying six feet in the air because the ice had, like, little divots all over it. But uh, the guy, we just got – he skated our asses off, and – but it's a team bonding thing. So it ended up being good. Big dinners every night, guys hanging out. The golfers golfed. And the other guys did sightseeing, you know, go, go to different places. And it's a pretty beautiful area. And uh, it was a really, really good time. Nice little break, I guess, kind of before we kind of get to the dog days of the season. And in early March, the team makes a trade. We just touched on it. Ivan Corvu, a longtime capital that really never, I don't think, found his place. He was kind of in and out of the lineup a lot. Gets traded for veteran goaltender Mike Liut. So a couple questions here. You know, did you guys feel that you needed a, a seasoned backup goalie? And and kind of why didn't Ivan, you know, he was a draft pick of the Caps. Why do you think it just didn't work for him? Well, first of all, with Ivan and all the other guys they drafted, there were these guys that were six foot two twenty when they were sixteen years old. And they played on a lot of these guys played on the Canadian national team. And but they didn't get ice time. Mm -hmm. And Dave King just had them on the team. Jeff Greenlaw, another guy, Curtis Chris Joseph, guys like that, Sean Anderson. They played on those teams. They were on those teams, but they never got to play. Mm -hmm. So they were never game ready. So when they got as first rounders, there was a pressure to play them. And I never thought they left those guys in the minors long enough to season and develop. Because if you're not ready from day one, you're probably going to be two to three years away. That's my general manager hat. Uh, 
So when I looked at all of those guys, they were never developed. So all of a sudden, a guy would get, get in a little bit tear in the American League. They'd bring him up. Well, then he wasn't, still wasn't ready. And next thing you know, he's a healthy scratch. So confidence-wise, game-wise, they should have left them somewhere long enough to develop some positive stats, to accept roles, to figure things out. More minutes in a game are better than no minutes in a game. And that's, I believe that's why it never, ever worked out for those guys. Makes complete sense. So, you know, as we're getting down to the kind of the end of the regular season, you'd end up fighting a career-high 31 times during your rookie year. At any point, did you just go, oh, my God, my hands are falling apart? I mean, nah, it, it uh, I think. How'd I you do it? I don't know. if I, I never had any injuries that year as far as that. I had the one groin in, thing that cost me about a week, and I never had a muscle pull in my career. I never, but And that year, I never hurt thumbs, the fingers. There's cuts here and there. But I've been doing this for a long time. I fought in junior. I fought. I scored and fought. I played defense. I played every position. Other than goaltender, uh, I'm just used to doing it. And you just, I was on a roll. So I, I never look, and I still, like I said, I, I still felt like I didn't fight enough or, or do enough because there was times like, ah, I could have done more. And you, you, you look at that and, you know, I wish I would have had better stats. And there was times that so many good scoring opportunities that I had that season that I never converted. Uh, so you, you, just, you just do what you do. You want to be on the team. You want to play in the National Hockey League. So you just accept your role. And if you're legit, you do it you guys end up wrapping up the season against the new york rangers and the new jersey devils and it comes playoff time and we could do a whole nother episode about the playoffs you finished your first year in the national hockey league what do you like what do you take away from that what do you recall were you proud of yourself were you i mean what memories do you have of that no i was extreme i was extremely happy with myself with what i'd done the fact that i played opening night was a regular going into my first playoff series i'm going to play Every game as a, as a regular in the playoffs. Uh, I know that I'm going to get a nice raise, like a legit contract that gives you somewhat. It gives you a playing security because they're not about hiding. There were no wasting dollars back then when you got a contract. And oh, by the way, the Caps were the second lowest payroll team yeah. in the league that year. Yeah. Uh, and and one of your teammates was actually making fifty thousand dollars, the league minimum at the time. Well, and the, and I didn't even know that was the league minimum. But there, there was a loophole that they were using on these two-way contracts. And I actually signed a contract like that, but I got paid every game I played. I got a bonus. Every 10 games, I got a bonus, I believe. Uh, and I, so I ended up maxing out my contract. And the games that I was hurt or suspended for, I had built that into my contract because I was still kind of my own agent when I decided on this contract over this other one that they offered me because I would have got that in the American League as well. And this wasn't the day of standard contracts. This was like kind of the wild, they're, wild they're, west. They were Actually, it was a David Poyle loophole. And oh, I think okay. he was the only guy that used this. But I was looking at it. I'm, doing, I'm not doing anything I can to deter myself financially from getting on this team. And then after that, I'll make money. But once again, it wasn't about making money back then. I never looked at it that way. So the, uh, you, know, you, you look at it, I knew I was going to get a good contract. And the zero dealt my mind. Because if they weren't going to do it, I had stats. And played well enough that no matter what team I played on the National Hockey League, they were going to pay me. And probably a lot more somewhere else than the Washington Capitals. But I wanted to be a Washington Capital first and foremost. Just summarizing that playoffs, three rounds, it was the furthest the Capitals would ever go. What do you remember quickly, briefly, John Drews going crazy on the loose? Well, I think the biggest thing I, I remember going into, I remember the first morning, there used to be a paper called The National, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, a daily in all the major cities and had all the best writers. It's a lot what the athletics wanted to be, but the athletics easier to get to. 
because it's on your phone. You pay whatever. I Because the know. National was like a sports paper, right? Yes, just and it had the best writers in the country. It was legit guys. It wasn't rumor mongers. It was uh, guy, a guy like Mike Lupica and guys like that. Well, I remember reading on the very first morning, I get the National, and I read it, and they're talking about the key, key to the series is me. If they can control this guy that does this, that doesn't go to the penalty box by himself. And it, as soon as I read that, I go, oh, my God, I'm legit. I'm a legitimate player. I've like I'm, I'm looked at as a super threat. And I remember having breakfast with John Drews that day. And, you know, every moment is different. But I said, hey, Johnny, it's, it's up to us young guys to show these guys how to win. They don't know how to win. They expect the same old, same old. And they don't think like they should think. And I said, it's up to us young guys to make a difference. So I remember in the, in the playoffs before Johnny went, we, us young guys, we're, we're in the dressing room, and I, this would piss guys off. But I would go, hey, you bunch of old losers, we're going to show you how to win a, f- a fucking playoff round, and we're going to get out of here, and we're going we're gonna to kick some ass. And I just had that, and guys, you're an ass. You're, you're a cocky little son of a bitch. And I go, no, you guys haven't done shit. You never do anything in the playoffs. And I remember going through New Jersey, and then the Rangers, and the Rangers was one of the one of the things in the Rangers series. We played them, and Mike Lee was in net. Mike, I always Mike was a World Hockey Association guy. Had one of the coolest goalie masks ever. Always looked cool in his uniform, and I loved him. And I wish I could have played with him longer. I, the guy was so funny. It was he was awesome, and he was but he was class personified. He he carried himself. To, he carried himself as successful as he is today. Like he, there was never a doubt in his mind. He was a, he was a high roller thinker but he, he didn't act like a high roller but he just had a mentality of success and uh we got beat i don't know how bad it was in that first game maybe six to two uh, to the rangers in game one of the second round after going through jersey and six i think it was and uh he, he we should have lost by 20 and we're in the arena for warm-up and the place is packed and they're already louder than Landover. They're louder than Cap Center. And this is at Madison Square yeah. Garden. And then we go into the dressing room and it's kind of unnerving. And the circus is in town. So the whole day is kind of a, it's a shit show. So there's people in our dressing room when we get there. You know, it doesn't have all the extra rooms like they have now. They've added on to all these things. And the, you know, we get circus ladies in our shower. Like we go in the room. It's bizarre. And the arena smells like elephant shit. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's just weird. It's bizarre. But it's Madison Square Gardens. And, uh, which is pretty, I love playing there. So the ice is shit, there's stains on it, it's bizarre. They do the changeover. Well, we're in the dressing room and you can feel the rumble of the crowd. We go out and once, uh, I cannot remember his name right now, who sings the anthem, once he starts, now we can't even yell in each other's ears from beside each other. We're yelling and we can't talk to each other. They score first, they score quick, and the pl- it's pandemonium. Like we never got unnerved, we never got on track. Uh, it was somewhat intimidating. And I remember we, it was when the first, I think that was the first year they had, you always had a day off between a playoff game. Cause we used to go like a Tuesday, Wednesday and then day off. travel day. And then, uh, yeah. And then two games. And then, you, and I forget how the other part used to go. The, the last three games of a series would go, but anyways, I mean, you're flying commercial a lot of the time. <laughs> Some of the teams just started doing charters. And so anyways, we, uh, we have a little secret meeting between the coach, Del Hunter and myself. And he comes up, he goes, guys. If we're going to win this series, we got to shut this crowd up. And uh, we, we've got to do things. We've got to take them out at the start of the game. So Dale Hunter and I 
put on a gong show first shifts of the game like he grabs one of his best friends beats a daylights up i think he was trying to smash his head in the ice his, <laughs> one of his buddies and uh <laughs> then i have a guy that's a pretender who's got about 300 penalty minutes and says you want to go but he's trying to dangle but i'm going to beat the shit out of him anyway so I, I knock his teeth out i beat him up knock him out and we're in a big scrum and i think i got a five and he got a two but he said you want to go did the d- glove dangle so i just dropped him when he didn't i just started punching him anyways because we had to take the crowd out I go in the penalty box, I come out, we're winning. We had a, I put the team at a disadvantage. We ended up winning that series in five. We, we shut Madison Square Garden up. That night, I think Johnny Drews got shorthanded goals. I, oh, my I God, he scored like nine goals yeah. in like six games or yeah, something. Yeah, but anyway, so in that game alone, Dale Hunter and I gooned it up. And for lack of a better uh, term, we gooned it up. We took all 18,000, 20,000 of those people out of, out of it. And we won that series decisively in five games. We crushed in the next one. And the best part about winning that series was when we left the arena, there were literally grown adults crying, like, like sobbing crying. All, there were people in the arena crying. It was awesome. I never felt so good to shove it up to a crowd in my life. And it was, but people were literally crying, holding each other, like just heaving. And it was, it felt so great to do that to New York City. Oh, I bet. I bet, Alan. Uh, you're in the media now. I always give everyone an open forum. What's your social media? What are you, what are you doing now? Give, you know, give people what you're up to. Okay, so now I am a television analyst, mostly pregame, postgame, between the benches for the Washington Capitals for NBC Sports Washington. And, you know, it's, it's my primary gig. I've done it for 11 years. I love doing it. I work with a great group of guys. Uh, you know, the guys that are in front of the camera, Joe Beninati, Craig Lachlan, Al Koken, who's been my friend forever. Locker's one of my best buddies. Uh, Rob Carlin has got to be part of our group. And just the guys that are behind the scenes. we got a really good group of guys. And uh, it's been fun. And then fortunately for all of us, you know, as a player, I suffered through playoff defeats. As an analyst and an alumni, a guy that's on the board of directors with some of those names I mentioned uh, for the Caps alum. We, uh, we live this, and we make no bones about it. We do want the Capitals to win. We try not to be biased. We uh, try to put, uh, even when we're negative, we try to put a positively negative spin on things. Not a spin, but you don't have to attack people because we're all part of the same group. Uh, we're broadcast partners. Uh, like I said, we're fellow alums. So we're around the players. They, too, one day will be alums. And it's just uh, it's kind of a dream. When they won the Stanley Cup, uh, I cherished Las Vegas winning that cup and that run more than my own hockey career. So I've been really lucky that awesome. way. Got to be part of the parade, one of the greatest days of my hockey life. And uh, my kids got to be in Vegas for the game. It, you know, so I, when, when the Caps got the hoist the cup, they got the hoist the cup at the team party after the game. So the last couple of years have just been an absolute highlight. And uh, I couldn't be any happier to do what I'm doing. Awesome. Twitter handle is May Hockey NBCS. Awesome, man. Thank you for doing this. And uh, we got to have you back on again. Yeah, thanks a lot. I love doing this. All right. What a great interview. I just had so much fun. I actually liked part two better than part one. And who would have thought that Ivan Carvo had the hairiest back on the team? Thank you for that, Alan. Appreciate that. Anyways, be sure to check out Alan on Twitter and on social media. He's got a lot going on. He's also involved in a tech company as a startup. So uh, tons going on with him. Great guest. And uh, definitely want to chat with him again down the road. And uh, yeah, so that's about it. So anyways, have a great week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time on another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History. Take care. Take care.